want to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 14. Uh, we have been in a study of Ephesians, and uh, we're going to be touching a little bit on Ephesians. And as we enter into um, what Jana had just recited about this great mystery of the Jews and Gentiles and one as one new man. Uh, but today, being that it's Father's Day, I wanted us to uh, look into a special man's uh, life, uh, a man who was very influential in the Ephesians church. And so this is a, a message to men, but uh, I do believe that the things that will be said are as equally applicable to women. But being that it's Father's Day, I, I want to speak to the men who are listening. I have been blessed over many years of ministry to serve alongside uh, some terrific men, uh, godly men, and of course, women as well. Uh, I do, however, have a burden that within our culture, there is an assault uh, upon men, and uh, that assault is essentially uh, to call men away from their distinctive calling by God to lead in their families and to lead in the church. Uh, and I realize even in saying those words, that is somewhat controversial. Uh, but from even within the church and certainly from outside in the mainstream culture, uh, we are, men are being encouraged to listen to messages, messages that uh, push men towards being fearful and passive and disengaged. But on the other side, uh, honestly, there have been more than enough uh, examples, bad examples of horrible male leadership, which I believe is what has somewhat contributed to the rise of feminism in the church and led to a pendulum swing within the hearts and souls of men. Uh, there have been more than enough examples of abusive husbands and dads, aggressive church leaders, uh, as well as any number other of um, transgressions that men have committed in the name of being male. And all of these have left scars, real scars, scars that uh, linger in the lives of people affected by them. Some leave the faith, some leave families, uh, but it always leaves a scar. And I am convinced that the answer to these abuses, whether they be passive or aggressive, the answer is not to jettison what the scripture teaches, the biblical pattern for male leadership, whether that's in the home or in the church. Uh, but I believe that the answer is to facilitate a biblical and godly uh, example of men leading using their strength to serve and to protect, for men using their wisdom in order to guide, and men using their love in order to heal and not to abuse. And why is this critical? I think it is critical because as we look at the world in which we live in today, uh, with all of the cultural unrest that's going on, with all of the economic uncertainty that our nation is experiencing, uh, and certainly without any moral clarity within our society, we need men. We need men who will stand in the gap uh, we certainly need women, but we need men, men who will lead with the courage of Jesus, men who will lead with the compassion of Jesus, and men who will live with the sacrificial perspective of our Lord Jesus. So since we've been looking at the book of Ephesians uh, for some time, 
I want us to look at this man who had a profound influence on the church in Ephesus, and his name is Timothy, as an encouragement not only to our men, but also to our ladies. Uh, And what I want us to see in Timothy's life uh, that will help us to be men of God in our day is two things. One, what are we seeking to be influenced by? I'm sorry, who are we seeking to be influenced by? Who are the influencers in our life? And then the second thing I want us to look at is what are we believing is worthy for us to live and die for? So who are we seeking to be influenced by and what are we believing is worth living and dying for? Let's talk about that first one. Who are we seeking to be influenced by? Our world is filled with influencers. Uh, I'm still somewhat baffled at this whole phenomenon of social media influencers. Someone younger than I can help me understand that. Um, But they're out there, and people aspire to be one. Uh, But the truth is, is that men are always seeking, looking for someone to influence them. They want, we want to be influenced by others. We are looking for who we will hang around because we know, as my mom used to always say, birds of a feather do flock together. Uh, We want to know whose opinion we ought to seek out. And men are always looking for someone they want to emulate. Scriptures talk about this. Proverbs 13 verse 20 says this, whoever walks with the wise will be wise, but the companion of fools suffers harm. The Apostle Paul picks this up in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, and says, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. So let's look at the scriptures and look at Timothy and see who was Timothy influenced by. We first actually meet Timothy in the scriptures in Acts chapter 16. So keep your hand in 14 because we're coming back there in just a moment. But we first meet this man, young man named Timothy in Acts 16, the first three verses. says this, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So here we, that's the first we, uh, we hear of Timothy, but in order to fully understand his story, uh, we have to read a significant portion of Acts chapter 14, verses 1 through 22. So I'm going to uh, invite you, if you'd like, to stand uh, in honor of God's word as we're going to read the first 22 verses of Acts chapter 14. And I'm reading from the English Standard Version. It says this, Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace 
granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands, but the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them, meaning mistreat the apostles, and to stone them, they learned of it and they fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia, and, they, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and he began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lycaonian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gate and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from all these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own way. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good even by even giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness, even with these words. They scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifices to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Father, we ask that you would bless the reading, the hearing, and now the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. As we read here, Timothy grew up in the town of Lystra. Lystra would be in modern-day Turkey. The people of Lystra were a fiercely independent people, uh, who lived in the high plains, high cold plains of Lycaonia. The elevation would be similar to that of Denver, Colorado. Uh, most of them were farmers in that area. And historically, they had, uh, as a people, resisted the Persian Empire for so long. Uh, but eventually they were overcome and by this point in history, in the first century, uh, when Paul and Barnabas arrived, these people uh, had adopted uh, the, the, the lingua franca, which was Greek, uh, but they had also 
uh, adopted the Greek pantheon of gods. Although there were some Jews in the area, there's not enough for them to have their own synagogue. Um, even though they knew the Greek language, they maintained their mother tongue. Uh, you see that uh, I'm wearing uh, a shirt. This is a Af shirt I got when our family was living in Africa. We served as Bible translators because we realized how important uh, the mother tongue is to people. And when people lose their mother tongue, uh, they lose some of their culture and they lose some of who they are. Uh, but these people had maintained their own mother tongue, their tribal language, like Ionian. Now, as far as Timothy's influences, it's fair to say that outside of his family, just within the broader society of List, the town of Lystra, his influences were uh, people who were fiercely independent, who were proud people, uh, strong people, and uh, hardworking people. Good people, uh, we might say. Other significant influences came, though, from within Timothy's family. We know the most about Timothy's mother. Her name was Eunice. It says in Acts chapter 16, verse 1, you saw this, that he was the son of a Jewish woman. Uh, in Paul's second letter to Timothy, we learn a little bit more information about this Jewish woman. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, we, Paul mentions that Timothy had a sincere faith that dwelt first in his grandmother Lois and also in his mother Eunice. So he had... He was the third generation in the line of faith of the covenant God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That same letter, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, we read that from childhood, so from by that we extrapolate from that it was his mother's influence. From childhood, you have been acquainted, Paul's saying to Timothy, you have been acquainted, Timothy, with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation. Eunice and Lois, from the time that Timothy was a baby, I see some little babies here today, uh, some kids here there, his mother and grandmother had taught him the Old Testament, had taught him the narrative, the history of the Jews, had taught him the prophets, uh, that he was acquainted with the sacred writings. That would have been uh, Paul's way of referring to the Old Testament. So looking at his influences, we see that Timothy had been influenced by two God-fearing women, at least that sought, on, sought to pass on the importance of God's Word and that God was a saving God. But that was not the only influence within Timothy's family. We read in Acts chapter 16, verse 3, that Timothy's father was a Greek. Now this could have meant that he was actually descended from the Greeks, uh, as in the people of Alexander the Great. Uh, that that uh, civilization had been overcome and conquered by the Romans by this point. However, 
Much of the influence of the Greek empire still remain, including their language. So he may have actually been Greek, but uh, more importantly, what this is saying is that it was, it was put in contrast to the fact that he was not a Jew. Uh, his faith commitment was not to the covenant-keeping God of Israel. But what I want you to see is that Timothy's dad was not an indifferent unbeliever. You know, there are some, there are some guys out there, and, and ladies as well, but uh, we see this more in uh, when there's a, a, a mixed marriage of a believer and an unbeliever. It's typically the lady who uh, wants to follow the Lord, and, there, and then there's a, uh, a man who is somewhat indifferent. Well, that's not the situation it was in Timothy's family. Uh, look at chapter 16, verse 3. It says that uh, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him. Why did he circumcise him? He circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, plural, those places, for they all, all what? All Jews, all the Jews in those places around Lystra and Iconium, they all knew that his father was a Greek. Timothy's dad was not ambivalent to the biblical faith of his wife. He was not indifferent about his acrimony towards Judaism. And he made it clear that he was not one of them. He may be married to one of them, but he was not one of them, and all the Jews knew about it. So the most important man in young Timothy's life, we can assume, had not encouraged him to seek the God that his wife followed. Timothy grew up with competing ideas, ideas of what would give his life significance, ideas of what was to be pursued, what should be valued, what his identity should be put in. And I in that, I hope you see that that's not very much different than any of us and how we are influenced by the people in our lives. Now, Timothy was a young man, probably around 18 years old, when he first heard the gospel of Jesus. These two Jewish men named Paul and Barnabas come into his town. They had just been run out of the major city, Iconium, of their region, but they weren't run out of town by... The Gentiles, the Greeks, they had been run out of town by their own people. It was the Jews that had run Paul and Barnabas out of town. And so we were told in Acts chapter 14, verse 7 and following, that Paul and Barnabas, when they arrived in Lystra and Derby, they continued to preach the gospel. The gospel, the gospel that says that man is sinful and separated from God. The gospel that says that man, by his good works, is unable to save himself. The gospel that says that man, or that God, in infinite love and mercy, looked down on the impotence of man's ability and with love decided to act. And, and that God not only just uh, 
absolved them of their sins with a decree, but he actually entered into their world and lived a sinless life so that that God could go to a cross and die for the sins of all his people and be put to open shame and then be buried in a borrowed tomb. But on the third day, that gospel says that that Jesus was raised from the dead, victorious over the grave, victorious over sin, which is the cause of death. And Paul and Barnabas preached, continued, it says, to preach the gospel. It was it was what they said every day, every opportunity they could. And in there, while they were preaching, there was a man who was just sitting there listening. And Paul's in his preaching, just I'm sure as he's preaching, he just keeps looking at this man and he's and he recognizes there's something in his gaze that is demonstrating of that there is real faith. And and Paul just connects with him and then speaks to this man and just calls him out and says, you need to stand up right now. And this man who had never walked from the time he was born was healed instantly through faith in the God that Paul preached. Now, the residents of Lystra, they didn't have any paradigm other than the one that they'd always assumed, and that is that the uh, the gods the of the Greek pantheon, in particular, God Zeus and Hermes. Zeus would have been the premier god. Barnabas was given that title, but Hermes, who was the main communicator of the Greek gods, what, that was who Paul must have been, that they assumed that they'd come down, and that's the reason that this man was able to get up. And so they decided they wanted to offer sacrifices. But because Paul and Barnabas didn't know the Lycaonian language, they didn't know what they were saying. That Then all of a sudden they see this priest certainly dressed in unusual clothing and bringing an animal to be sacrificed. And when they realized what was going on, they didn't just, well, you know, come on, just let them do what they're doing. This is their culture. Let them do what they do. And once it's over, then we'll help to explain them. No, Paul and Barnabas ran right into the center of it and said, stop it. Cut it out. We are men just like you. But what comes next in verse 15 ought to stun us says, we bring you good news. Meaning, what you have, what you were about to do is bad news. This is a bad idea, but we bring you good news. And what's that good news? You should turn from this. What you're about to do, you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heavens and the earth. Whoa. Now, it's one thing to disagree with someone's faith, but to tell them that what they are doing and have done their entire life is absolutely meaningless, that's a whole nother level. And it's at this point that the Jews from out of town show up and they at just the right time and they stir up these Gentiles who are who have just been insulted. Their lifelong faith has been insulted and they stir up the crowd and they start looking down and finding stones. 
that the one who they thought was Hermes, they start picking up stones and they are going to kill this man. And they stone him to the point where they're convinced that he's dead. And like a piece of meat, they drag him out of the city and just leave him there. Public opinion had turned quickly. A few years ago, I was in Jamaica with my family on a missions trip, and we were showing a gospel film when outside the place we were, a fight broke out among some teenagers. And I went outside to break up this fight. And before I could get in the middle of it, I watched somebody pick up a stone about the size of my fist and like Nolan Ryan took that thing and threw it as hard as it could and hit this other person straight in the face took him down and I thought I thought about every one of our brothers and sisters in church history who've been stoned to death. That's what they thought they'd done to Paul. I can't imagine what Paul must have looked like after that. But here he is, this piece of meat, dragged outside the city, and the believers circle around him when they recognize He's still breathing. He's still breathing. And they begin to care for him. In verse 20, it says that Paul got up and he entered the city. And the next day, he went on a 60-mile walk to Derby. That's how far it is from Lystra to Derby. Not to go to a hospital. Not to be with friends. To preach the gospel. He was going to preach the gospel there. Timothy would have been aware of all of this. He heard the gospel messages. He saw the one true living God's power to heal a crippled man. He saw that Barnabas and Paul were refusing to take any glory, that they weren't indifferent to what was happening, but they were insistent to stop it, that they would not take any glory that belonged to God alone. And Timothy saw their willingness to suffer and carry on. And something clicked in Timothy. He saw and heard the reality of the kingdom of God. Two men who are willing to live and to die simply for one glorious truth, God's kingdom. And Timothy in that moment became to an awareness that there was nothing in heaven and earth that was more precious or important than Jesus Christ. And he bent his knee to Christ, and he got saved. How do I know this? 
How do I know that he got saved? Doesn't say that he got saved right here. How do I know he got saved? Well, a little bit of a Bible study. If you look at Acts chapter 16, verse 1, two years later, between Acts 14 and Acts 16, it was two years. Two years later, Paul returns to Lystra and it calls Timothy a disciple. A disciple is what was the name for a Christian, the, the primary name, biblical word for a Christian. So he had become a Christian, but how do I know that he got saved during Paul's ministry? Well, four times in Paul's letters, if you're taking notes, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2, I'm sorry, three, three times, and then 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2, Paul refers to Timothy as his son or his child, and that was a term that he reserved only for those who were converted under his ministry. So Timothy got saved during Paul's time in Lystra. So, who were Timothy's influences? Well, he had godly mother and a godly grandmother. He had a pagan father. Neighbors, co-workers, a society that valued independence. But then he had some serious gospel-minded people come into his life. And I wonder, in describing that, how much different is that from the influences in your life? Men, how different is that from the influences in your life? You've got some godly family members. You've got some unbelieving family members. You've got a society that is trying to convince you to live for yourself and live independent and to make it, uh, make it on your own. And then you've got some people who are serious gospel-minded associates and they are trying to compel you to live for Jesus Christ. I bet you your experience is a lot like Timothy's. Who are you seeking to be influenced by? Second thing I want us to see before we leave here today is what are we believing that is worth living and dying for? What are we believing is worth living and dying for? As men and women, of course. But as men, it is not simply the people that we associate or seek to be influences, influenced by that determine who we are. It is the messages that we receive, that we are willing to live for. In 21st century American culture, men are bombarded with mixed messages of what it means to be, uh, what is appropriate manhood. So on the one hand, and this is typically in your young teens and 20s, there's this idea of being strong, a warrior, a conqueror. Your value is in the, the money that you have, the sex and the power that you obtain. But then there's this other message, which has typically been reserved for late 20s and beyond, but I see it moving more into the younger generation. And that message is men are supposed to be passive and confused, uncertain, unwise, sort of milquetoast characters. We've seen it in TV characterizations of what men are like. Our value is diminished. 
Men aren't as smart or as organized as women. We don't think real clear. We get jumbled around. We're impulsive. We do stupid things. And women have to come in and save the day. And let me just say this. I'm so thankful for godly women who are wise and who have helped me make the the right decision. But that does not mean, men, that we are just to let them take over and let them lead when God has called us to lead. The reality is that these messages are being put out by the broader culture, the larger culture, and they're counterfeit gospels. They're trying to convince men, this is where you're going to get your satisfaction from. Maybe not a gospel that will save for eternity, but it'll, it's a gospel that will save you in this life. It will give you meaning and enjoyment in this life. They're counterfeit. They make promises that cannot be kept. And those are the messages that we're bombarded with, men. Last week, we saw the opening of Jesus' ministry where He says the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. God is calling men and women and children to believe in a real gospel, not a counterfeit gospel that stands in contrast to anything that the world has to offer. Paul preached that real gospel, and it changed Timothy. Within a very few short time, just a few years between Acts 14 and Acts 16, Timothy had made his choice. So that when he came, Paul came back, Timothy was a well-respected member of the fledgling church within the Lystra community. And Timothy, more than just being a church member, he willingly joined Paul for the gospel work of expanding the kingdom of God that Paul preached. So much so that Timothy is mentioned, after that point, Timothy is mentioned all over the place. He's mentioned in almost every one of Paul's letters. And, he's, and he, sometimes he's the co-author of those letters. But in the second half of the book of Acts, Timothy is all over the place. And as you read the book of Acts, you see there's about 20 or 25 people that Paul had uh, coming into his life. Mostly men, but some ladies in there that were being mentioned by name. These were Paul's companions in ministry. But among those 20 or 25, Timothy was unique. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says, I have no one like him. There's no one like Timothy. Timothy was often sent off to help a situation in a distant church. And though the Bible doesn't say it, church history records that Timothy was established as an overseer of the churches in Ephesus. The Bible does talk about Paul sending uh, Timothy to Ephesus in order to solidify their faith. But what church history tells us is that Timothy died a martyr's death at the age of 80. So what happened? What message compelled Timothy as a young man to make such radical decisions? And this is where I want young people, I want you to hear me. What compelled Timothy to make such radical decisions? More than just being a convert, more than just being a Christian, but someone who really was a disciple. Someone who really followed Not this easy believism that's so prevalent in the American church. 
What made Timothy make such radical decisions? I believe it is in the message that we read in Acts chapter 14, verses 19 to 23. So let's look at this one more time. Acts chapter 14, verses 19 through 23. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowd, they stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered around about him, uh, he rose up, entered the city. On the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. You see that? From Antioch and Iconium, violent men had followed Paul and Barnabas in order to kill them. And they thought they'd done it. But in verse 21, we read that Paul goes right back to those very same places that those violent men had come from. Paul returns to the place of suffering in order to strengthen the believers. And his message was this. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. I close by making two brief but critical points. First is this kingdom of God. We talked about it last week. It's what Jesus opened up his ministry talking about the kingdom of God. It's that it's it's how Paul and his uh, gospel preaching always he always preached the gospel in the context of this broader kingdom of God. In fact, it says in Acts chapter 28, verse 31, the last couple verses of the book of Acts, it says Paul in prison was proclaiming the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, we must view our lives in terms of being a citizen of an alternate kingdom. We live in this world, but we are not of this world. The gospel is not just about forgiveness of sins. The gospel is not just about making it to heaven. The gospel is not just about eternal life and peace in your heart. The gospel says that you have been bought out of the kingdom of darkness and translated into the kingdom of His beloved Son. You are a citizen of God's kingdom, Jesus Christ is your king risen from the dead and you and I are called to be counter-cultural, whether it is in elementary or middle or high school or college or wherever we be, whether we work for a Christian organization or a completely pagan boss, we are to be counter-cultural committed to Jesus Christ. Second thing he, I want you to see from that sentence through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God, is this word tribulation. While we live out this commitment to kingdom life on this planet, we have to expect hardship. It was said to me early on in my Christian life, if you are not experiencing some kind of pushback because of your faith, then you are not living the Christian life correctly. Let me say that again. If you are not receiving some kind of pushback because of your Christian faith, some kind of persecution, then you aren't living the Christian life correctly. You may say, but I've only got Christians around me. They're not going to persecute me. 
then I say that, that Jesus is calling you to find some new people to hang out with. Because part of our message is that Jesus is better than the empty things that this culture tries to throw at us, and get these false gospels. And if we live out loud, people should mock us and scoff at us and ridicule us and talk behind our back. And some of them may be really close relatives and some of them may be really close friends or some of them may just be associates, but it should happen. Jesus suffered. Stephen suffered. Paul suffered. And Paul said to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Timothy was an ordinary young man, but he was captured by a vision of God and his kingdom. Timothy willingly chose to be influenced most by those in his, in his adult life. When he could choose, he was in, chose to be influenced most by those who had that same captivating vision. Timothy believed that only the kingdom of God was worth living and dying for. So as an 80-year-old man, having served the churches, the house church moving around Ephesus, in mid-August, during a three-day feast called Contagion, I'm sorry, Catagogian, which was in honor of goddess Diana, who we've learned about, Artemis, we read about the, her temple in Ephesus. Timothy, like Paul and Barnabas, 45 years earlier, didn't just stand on the sideline and watch the pagans do what pagans do. He rushed right into the middle of the procession going down the main street there, in Ephesus, and he exhorted them to turn from their idolatry. And as he was pleading with them and holding up this parade, this 80-year-old man, in a time of history where a lot of people didn't live to 80 years old, this 80-year-old man is holding it up, and some person said, enough's enough, pulled out a club and took him down, and he died two days later. Beaten so severely with clubs that his body couldn't recover. Let me conclude with this. As I think about One City Church, I am so thankful as I look at the men because I see within us, a leaning towards that spirit that was within Timothy. Are we there yet? No. But we're leaning in the right direction. For the most part, that's what I see. And I'm so thankful for that. But on this Father's Day, I want to say we need a generation of men like Timothy. Strong, who will use their strength to serve those in their life. Wise enough to filter through all the false gospels and make God-honoring decisions and sacrificial, willing to give of their life even to death.
So men and ladies, I ask you to consider Paul's final exhortation, which he wrote at the end of his very last correspondence to Timothy. When he said this, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed, and he will bring me safely into his eternal kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray and then let's sing one final song and worship to our King. Father, we are grateful to be surrounded by so great a witnesses, so great a cloud of witnesses, Lord. Lord, it helps us in the struggles of our day to be able to look not only to Scripture, but to the people that you've put into our lives and see people that are radically devoted to living and even dying, if that would be your call upon their life, for the glory of God through the gospel, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're thankful, Lord God. It helps us to run our race with endurance, Lord God. Lord, this cloud of witnesses helps us to lay aside the weight that encumbers us and the sin that so easily entangles us. It helps us, Lord, to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, scorning the shame, and ultimately seated at the right hand of You, Father. Lord, we thank You for one another. Lord, raise up within One City Church, within Lancaster City, within Lancaster County in Pennsylvania, the United States and around the world. Raise up among the Rangi in, in Tanzania. Raise up, Lord God, among the Kurdish people in northern Iraq. Raise up, Lord, among the, uh, the people of Philadelphia that our sister Alexis is reaching out to. Raise up a generation of men and women that are willing to believe the gospel enough to live and to die for it. Only you can do that in our hearts. Break us of our sinful tendencies and our self-protection keeps us so caught in the mundane experience of this life. And there is so much more to live and die for. And I ask it, Lord, knowing that you hear, because we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.